Most of his days and nights are spent this way, alone, silent, hidden among the shifting shadows of the swamp. Sometimes it occurs to him how barren this existence is, but always the thought fades, as do all his attempts at recollection and reason. Hello everyone and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. My name is Paul Matthew Carr and I'll be your guide on a journey through the wacky and the weird, the often wonderful, of a 70s swamp-based monster comic. I said that intro slightly different this time, just to shake things up a bit and try something different. Don't like it? Felt weird. Not gonna do it again. (laughs) Change is scary. Okay, today on the program, it's the big one, the grandest euphemism in all of comic book history. Giant-sized man-thing. That song snippet you just heard is by an artist named John Thomas. That's right, it begins now. Adolescent humor coming right at you. Nah, I'm just kidding. I actually was going to pepper the episode with jokes of a questionable nature throughout the runtime, but I decided not to do that. Try to be a little bit more professional. So instead, I'm just going to get it out of my system all at once, right away. Are you ready? Here we go. This is a members-only podcast. If this podcast lasts longer than four hours, call a doctor. Giant-sized man-thing. It's a pretty hard subject. But I'm not going to go soft on it. This issue is so good, it should be illegal. And just for reading it, you should be put in the penile system. And finally, what do you find inside a giant-sized man-thing? A glob of blue. That last joke, by the way, is not only a pun, it is factually correct. Okay, now that that's out of the way, we can proceed to a more dignified and adult conversation. So what is a giant-sized man-thing? Perhaps I should rephrase. What is the giant-sized line of comics released by Marvel in the 1970s? And for that matter, why was it even a thing? Well, I'm glad you asked. A lot of it has to do with how comic books were distributed at the time. See, there was a push by Marvel and DC to stay competitive in the magazine market. Nowadays, comics are distributed almost exclusively through comic book stores. Yes, we can quibble about digital and online and Walmart and such, but for the most part, your local comic book store is how you get your comic books. Now, the history of how comics came to be distributed this way is a long and complicated one, one that I'm hoping to discuss in detail on this podcast in an upcoming episode, because, well, I find it fascinating, and hopefully I'll be doing it with another person who's much more knowledgeable about the subject than I am. But for my purposes here, it's enough to say that comic books at this time in the 1970s were sold like magazines. And they were, for all intent and purposes, considered magazines. That is, that they were sold at newsstands and on spinner racks and convenience stores, and pretty much anywhere you could buy a standard magazine, you would see a comic book right there beside it. That's how I grew up buying comics, flipping through a spinner rack at my local Wawa. But things were changing in the 1970s. Comic books were becoming not as profitable as a standard magazine, and because of that, they were losing shelf space at newsstands. You see, way back in the 40s and 50s, a comic book cost the same as Time magazine or Life magazine. But by the mid-1970s, Life magazine, for instance, 
had become this glossy, oversized, heavy prestige item and cost a dollar or more an issue. Comics, on the other hand, were a quarter. And if you were a store owner and trying to maximize your profit, you would put your emphasis on the books that made you the most money. It made perfect business sense, even though it sucked in reality. This is what ultimately led to direct distribution, but before that, Marvel and DC tried a few things to become competitive on the newsstands. That's why we got actual magazine formats with things like Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, Monsters Unleashed, Savage Sword of Conan, that sort of thing. These were black and white titles aimed at an older demographic, and they were typically of a higher quality, but they were by and large separate from the superhero fare, your standard comic book. So Marvel made the decision to do some oversized issues of the main comics line, filled with the characters everyone knew and loved in order to stay competitive while not excluding younger readers. Oh, and at the same time, DC was starting to do some 80 to 100 page super spectaculars and king size issues, but I'm sure what DC was doing had no impact at all on Marvel's decision process. I now pause for comedic effect. So anyway, the giant size line was born. It all started with giant-sized superstars featuring the Fantastic Four and the Hulk. This was basically a double-sized issue that sold for 35 cents. This was intended to be a quarterly comic with a rotating roster of heroes to spotlight different characters. And it did really well. So well, in fact, that the very next month, Marvel released giant-sized Spider-Man. And this made sense. Spidey was the most popular character at the time for Marvel, and the issue featured Dracula, also capitalizing on the monster craze that was going on at the time. A pretty smart move, all in all. This time, the issue was 68 pages, with a price tag of a whopping 50 cents. But this sold really well, too. Marvel was doing really well with their giant size line. So, Marvel, seeing that they had something really special on their hands, decided to take it slow and allow a dedicated fan base to build up. They let the giant size line grow organically and develop and take shape as the market allowed and the needs of their customers evolved. <laughs> no, they didn't. This is Marvel we're talking about. That's not how they roll. They rushed into production a dozen new giant size titles and flooded the market as quickly as possible. But to be fair, much of the original output was really quite good. Uh, giant Size Avengers, Giant Size X-Men were both excellent, at least at the start, just to name a couple. And they were very entertaining with top-tier creative teams and, and really good stories. But it couldn't last. Marvel was essentially asking their entire creative talent to double or triple their monthly output. And that was just not viable on a long-term basis. So original stories started to get shorter and more supplemental material was added to pad the issues till many were just reprints of earlier, regular issues. In fact, titles like Daredevil, Thor, and Doctor Strange, and a few others launched with nothing more than reprint material, which is a shame because there was a lot of potential there. So in just under two years, the giant size line just sort of petered out, a disappointing end to a pretty decent idea. But as I said, there were some highlights to this line's short time in existence. One of which I'll talk about right after this break. Hey, Ray. Yes, Connor? What's black and white and red all over? Huh. A newspaper? Not even close. Hmm. A sunburnt zebra? What are you doing, Ray? <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> 
Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. A weekly podcast coming to you from the High Priest of Khonshu. Available on all good podcast catchers. Giant Size Man-Thing number one. How will we keep warm when the last flame dies? Cover dated August 1974. It was written by Steve Gerber, art by Mike Plug, inked by Frank Ceramonte, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Petra Goldberg, edited by Roy Thomas. Chapter 1 On the edge of the swamp, Man-Thing watches as a delivery truck is stopped by a group of cloaked, entropy-worshipping cultists. Anywhere else in the world, this would be an unusual occurrence. But here in the Nexus, it's simply another Tuesday. The cultists want the truck, which is delivering supplies to Omega Environmental Systems, to turn around and depart, thus allowing the natural order of death and decay to happen without hindrance. Look, as far as demands go, this one's pretty tame. But, say the cultists, if they do not depart, they will be forced to employ the power of the golden brain. They then pull from a reinforced box a gold-colored human brain sealed inside a crystal ball. I should point out, this is the least strange thing that's going to happen. Seeing the golden brain, Man-Thing feels pain. Not knowing why, he feels compelled to destroy it. But the cultists are prepared. Their leader, Yugzan, has taught them how to summon a demon from the golden brain to protect them. You know, like you do. So, a golden mass of electric charges in man-like form rises from the ground and attacks Man-Thing, and the two creatures fight, sort of. Since the two have no real form, their punches pass right through each other. But although the glowing blob's punches pass through Man-Thing, he still feels physical and mental pain from the attack. In a desperate move, Man-Thing then pulls a sapling from the ground and hurls it towards the demon, and, I quote, its warm wetness disrupts the demon's electron flow." Unquote. This causes the demon to explode, and that sets off a chain reaction where the enormous release of energy bursts the casing of the golden brain, and the organ bounces down an embankment and sinks into quicksand. Meanwhile, in all the confusion, the truck simply drives away towards its destination, and Man-Thing quietly returns to the swamp, leaving the cultists to sit and contemplate just how massively screwed they are. Chapter 2. This Mind, This Universe As the golden brain sinks into the murky quicksand, it begins to remember what, or rather who, it once was. His name was Joe Timms, a tough kid from a tough block who got tough once too often. He got locked up for life, but when a woman got ill, the only human that mattered to him, he attempted escape and got stuck in quicksand. It's a thing, I guess. It is, to be fair, a common danger when escaping prison. And he was somehow turned into a hairy-looking dirt monster called the Glob. He ended up fighting the Hulk on an electric high-tension wire where he was knocked off and fell to the ground and his radiation-soaked body exploded into 10,000 bits and was scattered over the suburban landscape. After that, he had no memory of what came after, which, fair enough, if I was blown up into 10,000 bits, I'd probably be a little sketchy on the details afterward as well. But now the brain was free, 
and so it swam to the surface and flopped itself on the bank of the swamp and began the process of forming a new body from the wet earth. He then self-actualizes himself into a blonde Adonis, but because of the psychokinetic energy expended to do this, he no longer remembered anything of his previous life, and so walked off in search of answers. Meanwhile, in the rather elaborate headquarters of the Entropy Cult, the cult member who lost the Golden Brain recounts the story to leader Yugzan, who bears a striking resemblance to Richard Nixon. <laughs> Bet you didn't see that coming. Anyway, Yugzan Nixon pulls out a sword and decapitates the incompetent cultist because of entropy. Meanwhile, meanwhile, back in the swamp, the truck arrives at its destination and begins unloading its contents when the Golden Brain Adonis stumbles up to them where he is taken in and cared for. Chapter 3. No Shortage of Evil Turns out that the truck was carrying supplies for an experimental village of the future called Omegaville. It's full of solar panels and geodesic domes and hippies. It's meant to be an example to the world that no fossil fuels ever need to be used again, thus stopping global warming in its tracks in 1974 and averting an environmental catastrophe. Good thing we knew about this problem 45 years ago so we could take steps to fix it before it got out of hand. I will now pause for comedic effect. Anywho, Richard Rory shows up. He's a reporter now on the radio and he's doing a piece on Omegaville. He interviews Paul Benton, the founder of the project, and we get some much needed backstory before we're introduced to Joe. That's the golden-brained Adonis who stayed on with the village and is known as Omegaville's first native, their very own Adam created from the clay of the garden. What's that, Mr. Gerber? A metaphor, you say? Well, thank you for pointing it out. I would have missed it otherwise. Meanwhile, in another part of the swamp, Man-Thing watches as the cultists arrive with the dead body of the man Yugzan Nixon killed, and they perform a ritual burning. Man-Thing, afraid of the fire, backs away. Afterward, Yugzan Nixon says he can feel the golden brain close by because he has a psychic connection to it. You see, when he first found the brain, he ripped it from its dying remains and imbued it with part of himself. Let's not speculate on exactly what that means, but the connection is real, and soon he is reunited with Joe, where he orders him to devolve. So Joe devolves into a glob of mud and clay and goes on a destructive rampage through the village. Feeling Yugzan Nixon's hate, Man-Thing is drawn to make him stop, and so Man-Thing and the glob begin an epic and quite a squishy battle. The two creatures pound and smash one another, ripping huge chunks off each other's bodies, till finally, in an act of desperation, Man-Thing summons the last of his strength and rips the glob apart from the inside out. Seeing his creation in a pile of goo on the ground, Yugzan Nixon rushes to it and attempts to psychically reassemble the creature, but instead, he is engulfed in the clay that created it suffocating him, leaving his body to stand like a malformed statue in the swamp. Man-Thing returns to the swamp, and we are told he also returns to his desperations. So, wow, that was a thing, huh? <laughs> This story right here is what I like to call 
Gerber Palooza. It's a veritable festival of Gerber goodness. So many of his recurring themes are in full effect here. Seriously, if you're playing Gerber Bingo, you'll be checking off so many squares. Vaguely satanic cult members? Check! Environmental issues? Check! Existential philosophical ruminations? Check! Hippies? Check! Evil villain bent on world domination who might be Richard Nixon? Check! Formless gloopy monster? Check and check. The list could go on. Uh, he, he really pulled no punches on this one. I mean, I mean, really, you got your 50 cents worth in this comic. I mean, there is a lot going on here. Amidst all the bizarre craziness of cult members and glob monsters, Gerber is hitting some pretty deep subjects. For instance, there's a death cult. Well, to be specific, they're a cult that worships entropy. That in itself is interesting. It's, it's a quasi-religious order that worships the natural decline of all things. It's essentially nihilism. In fact, entropy is sort of the, the nihilist trump card. You know, we're all going to end up as dust, so why even try? That, that sort of thing. This is why, in the story, this is why the cultists are so opposed to the Omegaville project. Uh, it's a renewable society that does not decline or diminish. It, it puts lie to their beliefs. And so they must lash out to stop it from happening, or destroy it completely in order to reinforce what they already believe. In essence, anything that comes into conflict with their preconceived notions must be put an end to. There's a, there's a modern equivalent here, but I can't quite put my finger on it. But of course, Yugzan Nixon, while claiming and preaching the word of entropy, is in fact just out for himself. That's the whole point of wanting the golden brain of psychic power. He wants all the power to himself for selfish reasons. Uh, and he'll destroy and kill in order to achieve it. And that's just one of the themes that are, is going on here. A, a fascinating one, mind you. But in addition, there's also, you know, environmentalism. A recurring topic for Gerber. It's fascinating to read this and realize that way back in 1974 that while we didn't fully understand the ramifications of climate change, we did know something was going on. And it had to do with fossil fuels, and it had to do with pollution, and that there were things we could do to prevent problems in the future. But you could see that Gerber, although obviously engaged in environmental causes, was still very cynical about what we could achieve. Here, he creates this utopian, idyllic, and let's face it, hippie, self-sufficient commune. It is literally compared to the Garden of Eden. And like the Garden of Eden, the people are expelled from it. And expelled from it because of human failings. Look at, look at the character of Joe, the golden brain Adonis. A none-too-subtle metaphor, as I said in the synopsis. He is a perfect personification of the idyllic human form, sculpted from clay and tilling the soil of Eden in childlike innocence. But unlike Adam, he was sculpted not by God, but by the human will. And ultimately, it is the failing of the human will, greed, lust for power, ignorance, all coming from outside influences that devolve the perfect form until Eden is destroyed and devoured in flames, and man himself is fused into a barely recognizable facade of a human, cold and lifeless. There's a lot of heavy stuff going on here, is what I'm trying to say. 
But in typical Gerber style, all those heavy themes are given a humorous cover. There is there is a silliness that shrouds not only this story, but his stories in general, so that these kind of dark undertones are not overwhelming. I think I think that when people look back on these stories, not, not just Man-Thing and Gerber, but uh, the 70s Bronze Age in general, and the silliness is all they see, or at least the impact of the messages and themes are dismissed as kind of quaint because of that silliness. We have, after all, lived through the grim dark 80s and the extreme 90s and the whatever the 2000s were. And those were serious times with serious stories written by serious people. It's easy to see the Bronze Age as a haphazard and and goofy time. And you know what? It was silly. And it was goofy. But there was so much more happening at that time. This was a time of, of innovation and experimentation. And serious issues were being tackled. Politics, social and cultural ideas, sexual liberation and gender roles. But it was all packaged in this uh, friendly, sometimes humorous, sometimes outrageous way. But for me, I find that more impactful. In, in that way, you don't really see it coming. The 70s comics talked about all the same issues as the 80s and 90s did. They weren't just so depressing about it. But anyway, Man-Thing. I've been talking way too seriously about this comic, and it's time to address the giant-sized elephant in the room. And that is, of course, the title. Giant-sized Man-Thing has become somewhat infamous in comic book history. Not in a bad way, mind you. More of a punchline. It's been the butt of jokes and snarky comments and general giggles and guffaws throughout the 40-plus years since its release. And believe me, the release of a giant-sized Man-Thing is substantial. See? I did it right there. I can't help myself. And the one thing I hear most often uh, on Twitter and YouTube videos and below-the-line comments is something along the lines of, how did they get away with that? Meaning, of course, it's such an obvious euphemism and double entendre that someone, somewhere in the Marvel chain of command or distribution system or, geez, just a dang editor, must have noticed and thought to themselves, Hmm, I wonder if someone might take this the wrong way. But the thing is, in my research, and by research I mean I googled for about an hour. Actually, you know what? I'm not going to sell myself short. I actually do some research on this show, actually. (laughs) And I have read several books on Marvel and comics history, and I couldn't find anything to say that this was intentional. Sure, I found multiple comments by people involved at Marvel at the time who have, afterwards mentioned that it was, you know, pretty funny that a book called Giant Size Man-Thing was put out there. But it seems that at the moment, in the moment, it wasn't really picked up on. Now, there is a part of me that says, come on, how could you not have known? How could a Giant Size Man-Thing go unnoticed? I mean, these were pretty sharp people working at Marvel at the time, pretty hip and with the times and fully in tune with the liberation movements and drug culture, so there was no doubt that they were aware of slang and the existence of sexual body parts and and names for said parts. But maybe that's just me being jaded and cynical, and to be fair, my love of puns and innuendo is most likely clouding my assessment of this situation. Because it does seem, in all honesty, 
that the double meaning of giant size man thing was missed and no nefarious joke was being played on an unsuspecting public. It was innocent and unintentional. That being said, still pretty freaking hilarious, and I do not foresee any shortage of inappropriate jokes being made in the future by comic book readers in general, and me in particular. If there's one thing in this issue that doesn't work well, I think it's the backstory of Joe Timms. It's an obvious attempt at shoehorning in another character arc from a different book into this story to get the reader up to speed, but it just seems, it just seems clumsy. But it's mercifully short, and once it's out of the way, Gerber can get on with ignoring it completely, so, yeah, so it turns out fine in the end. Real quick about the art, and I'm going to have to talk about this more in future episodes because I don't quite have my, my thoughts together uh, exactly the way I want to present them. But I just want to mention that Mike Plug is a definite improvement over Val Mayark. And not to say that Val Mayark was, was bad. He's not, not in the least. It's just that Plug has a better feel for the world that Gerber is creating. It just feels, I don't know, smoother, more polished, while at the same time keeping the same aesthetic that the book has already created. Plug has a good sense of, of movement and pacing, and... I'm not really putting, I'm not really saying what I want to say. I'm going to have to talk about this more in the future when I figure out how to say what I'm thinking. But there'll be plenty of opportunity to talk about Plug's art in the future. Overall, I truly, truly enjoyed this comic. I read it as a kid and I loved it then, but I think I love it more now as an adult. Seeing all these themes and seeing all the, the, the satire that, that Gerber's putting in there and even his hints of cynicism about the uh, subjects that he's obviously uh, engaged with. It's it's a writer at the height of their powers and doing something really interesting in a medium that is becoming more experimental. Overall, though, while it's fun and it makes you think and it does what every great comic does, it entertains the hell out of you. Uh, plus, there's that there's that euphemistic title that makes you giggle. Giant size man thing, indeed. <laughs> Okay. So thanks for listening, everyone. I'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment on individual episodes on the website, nexusofallrealities.com, or send me your thoughts on Twitter, at Nexus of All. That's actually a great way to get a hold of me, as I am constantly hanging out there and making snar snarky comments on things, so, so I'll probably respond right away. Next time on the show, I am going to stray away from the main line again to do an issue of Master of Kung Fu, number 19 to be specific. It is the 1974 issue where Shang-Chi, the international martial artist crime fighter, hangs out in an obscure Florida swamp. Why he came to be there? We'll find out. Plus, I get to talk about the 1970s Kung Fu craze, which I didn't think I'd get a chance to talk about. But by golly, there's a Master of Kung Fu Man-Thing crossover. Who would have thunk it? Uh, it makes sense, though, because as we all know that in the 1970s, everybody, and I mean everybody, was kung fu fighting. Everybody was kung Wait for it. <laughs> There's plenty more of that on the next episode. Uh, again, everyone, thanks for listening. And um, what was my last sign-off in the last episode? Keep it swampy? Yeah, yeah I'm not going to do that anymore. 
Definitely need to work on a different closing line. I'll have to do that. But while I do that, uh, thanks again for listening, and bye, everybody. You've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elf production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? This, this causes the demon to explode, and that sets off a chain reaction where the enormous release of energy bursts the casting off the brain. I can't even read this. <laughs> All right. Keep it together, man. Warm, wet, wetness. <laughs> oh, disrupts the demon's electron flow. John Pertwee would be proud. Reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. <laughs> Here we go.